I know very well how important having a pianist is. Um, when Stella Dallas died, we had some time where we had trouble finding someone to play the piano. So when you don't have one, you, you definitely appreciate one. So, But it is a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, Brother Jesse's one of the first ministers in this area that I met whenever I moved here in 2001. And uh, a lot of familiar faces here. I may not know your name, but a lot of you I've seen. I've been in this church several times. And I've done some ordination services with some of your men, and so it's a pleasure to be here. How many of you, as you said, we're getting to the main course, I chuckled to myself, but how many of you like to eat? Raise your hand. Most of you. All right, on the count of three, I want you to say out loud what your favorite food is. One, two, three. Okay, I couldn't hear anything but mumbles, but... uh, Many of you prefer to uh, eat a meal that's cooked at home, a delicious home-cooked meals. Others might like to go to a nice restaurant, and, and my family, and especially my two oldest sons, uh, they prefer trying to uh, go into Louisville. Anytime they go to Louisville, they try to find a restaurant that they've never eaten at before, and uh, different kinds of food, different uh, whether it's Greek or Indian food or uh, Korean or Vietnamese, they, they love to find these out and then go eat there and they like sushi. How many of you like sushi? Okay. I don't. But uh, just Wednesday, I rode with my oldest son and his three kids to Owensboro. To, he was going to pick up something and uh, he wanted to stop at Wasabi's and uh, eat lunch. And so, uh, of course, I ordered something, you know, teriyaki chicken. And uh, they all ordered seafood and Luke ordered uh, several different uh, 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 sushi rolls. Some of it had uh, different types of meat that I, I wouldn't try. My grand, 10-year-old grandson, Lazen, ordered a seafood noodle soup. It had crab, it had shrimp, which I don't like. It also had octopus in it, and so a little cut-up octopus tentacles. How many of you ever feel like that? Norman, do you like that? I figured you would. But uh, they tried to get me to eat it, and I wouldn't try. But uh, why am I talking about food? Did you know that uh, eating meals and stories of meals and activities of eating meals is very prominent in God's Word? My daughter, a couple weeks ago, she intrigued me. She told me that the church where she attends and works in, in Louisville said they've been doing a sermon series on, on the meals of, uh, and Jesus and how, what, how he used these meals to minister to people. So I did some digging, I started doing some digging, and then, then Brother Chessie asked me to preach, and so... This is what led me to this uh, topic this morning. I'm going to be in Luke 14 and some other verses in, in Luke 7. And, but uh, we know, even going back to the Old Testament, is full of interesting stories that revolve around mealtime. We know that the first conflict in God's new creation uh, involved food, a food that was forbidden to eat, the food from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a story of Jacob and Esau, and we... And they prepare two different meal, uh, meals for their father, and we know that the confl- conflict that uh, resu- uh, came about as a result of these meals. There's a story of the Passover meal and, uh, that was eaten by the Hebrew people before they left Egypt for the Promised Land. And we know David went into the place of, of worship, and he was hungry, and he was on the run, and he, he, he ate the holy bread that was there. You have the story of Daniel and his friends who refused the king's rich food, and 
and uh, ate a, a healthy diet of food, and they were rewarded and blessed with, in that decision. Many, many more stories that you can find about meals and eating and, and God's Word. As we look at the, the New Testament this morning, uh, look at, at Christ and how he handled meals. And uh, the, my first question is, how did the Son of Man come? We can look in uh, Luke 19.10 and Mark 10.45. It tells us that he came to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. But how did he come? What did he do to accomplish God's purpose for him? One of the things he did, he, he did some preaching. He did some healing, did quite a bit of that. He did some, uh, a lot of teaching in the stories he told. In fact, John said he did so much healing of, that all the books that were in the world at that time could not contain the things that, that Jesus did. He certainly did all these things. He preached, he taught, he healed. But Jesus himself said in Luke 7.34, he said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we see he came. He came eating and drinking. He came. He did a lot of that. While John the, the Baptist, his predecessor on the other hand, he ate uh, locusts and, and wild honey. His disciples fasted a lot. And the, even some of the Pharisees fasted a lot. But Jesus didn't. New Testament scholar Robert Kerr says in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal eating a meal, or coming from a meal. In fact, he ate so many meals that we see that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, someone who ate too much, someone who drank too much. That is, he said, that the Son of Man, that's a reference to the representative of God's people, who comes in glory before the ancients of days to receive authority over all nations. We find that, that uh, vision that, that Daniel had in chapter 7. What's the Son of Man doing when he comes to earth? Well, we know that the, the Jews, they expected him to come as a mighty king, general, warrior, with a sword in hand, to destroy the, the Romans and defeat the, the enemies and to vindicate his people. But instead of that, we often read about Jesus sharing a meal. He turned it to Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It says that it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread... They were watching him closely. So as we think about this meal, as we think about other meals that Jesus partook of, a meal, or sitting down with a meal, is a, is a, is a symbolic of, of uh, welcomeness, friendliness. Uh, it, it expresses that. So, but even during the Bible times, I think it was more important, maybe than it is in our culture today. We're eating on the go. We're eating fast food, or we're eating in front of a TV, or uh, we're eating by ourselves. But in the Bible times, it was especially important. So it's, that's why Jesus' meals are so significant. Tim Chester writes that meals embody God's grace and enact God's mission. See, Jesus ate with, with some people that... that uh, People had a question about he ate with tax collectors. He ate with sinners. And we might equate these tax collectors with our, our IRS employees, and we might not think that's too bad. But that's not a fair uh, a comparison between the, the two from Jesus' day to our day. It would be like if Russia invaded our country, and then they set up and they, they got people 
to work for them, Americans to work to collect taxes that went back to the Roman government. How would we feel about them? And that's how the, the, the Jews felt about these tax collectors. So they led this activity of who he ate with and how he ate and how he didn't fast enough and how often he ate, it led the Pharisees to think that he couldn't be from God. And we see that expressed in Luke 5 and chapter 7 and, and chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And that would be a reasonable conclusion unless God's grace is so amazing that it allows Jesus to even eat with his enemies. And it's a reasonable conclusion unless God's grace explodes all, all of our expectations of what he should have been like. Meals are central to the mission of Jesus because they embody the, and enact the grace of God. And they can still have power today, as we're going to look at. What was true in the culture of the first century Palestine is still true in the present day world. We see as we look back at Luke 14 that Jesus is there eating with the, at the home of a Pharisee. And so he tells them some stories. He tells about the parable of the guest and the parable of the dinner. And he suggests there later that we shouldn't invite our friends to our parties. That's odd, isn't it? Instead, he says we should invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the, and the, and the blind. He says that there in chapter 13. You might ask a question, why? Well, because in, in verse 21 it says, God himself invites the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame to his great banquet. See, our experience and, and understanding of, of God's grace should, should shape our mission that we have as we go about living our life. Often we do things for the needy, which is good. You guys do a lot of things for the needy in our community. I know that. And I'm not saying, don't tell Brother Chessie I told you to stop. Because that is a good thing and we need to keep doing it. But when we do that, it puts us in a position of superiority over these people that we're helping. And it tells them that we're able and they are unable we may proclaim grace, but it's really interpreted as, as you need to be like us. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become like us. We love to run projects, but nobody wants to be your project. They want friendship. Well, what happens when we eat together, when we share with friends or food as, as friends? We sit at the same level table. We both need food to, to, to survive and to thrive and to, to go about our daily living. Around the meal that we can talk about our shared need of, of God's grace. We can share that with them. It's not just that the, the table is, is a great context for community. Not that it's just a great context for mission. Because food is central in who we are and how we relate to God and, and how we relate to the story of salvation. See, food reminds us of our dependence on other people. You know, we're not a, a, a culture anymore that goes out. How many of you have a garden? One, two, three, four, six. Used to raise a garden. Six or seven of you. Uh, anymore, we have to depend on a network of farmers, of traders, of food processors, of food distributors, of store owners, of cooks, of families, of traditions, of, of gastronomy. And so we, need, we have to depend on these people. We, we don't do it all ourselves. Also, as, as we think about that, as we're dependent on these other people, for our livelihood and our meals that we should become dependent upon God. We are finite beings who need sustenance to sustain us. We need to refuel from time to time. 
See, food is so much more than, than fuel. Think of all your favorite foods, steak and potatoes, sweet corn and green beans, tomatoes this time of year, salmon, fajitas, other, we could go on and on, I'm not even going to get into the desserts. You know, it didn't have to be that way. We could probably get by on biscuits, couldn't we? Biscuits and gravy. How many of you love biscuits and gravy? Bunch of you. Uh, never ate gravy with biscuits until I, until I could probably until I moved to Litchfield. But, uh, you know, the Hebrews, when they were in the wilderness, they first survived on manna, and then, they, then God provided quail for them. But we see God is ridiculously lavish when, about his creativity and about his generosity when it comes to food. See, God's first act after creating humanity was to present us with a menu, the fruit of all the trees in the garden but one. And I can imagine they were beautiful. No disease... No worm-eaten fruit, no rotted fruit. I can just imagine it was, it was all beautiful. See, as, as we partake of meals, it's an opportunity for us to receive God's good gifts. And as we receive these, we should receive these with, with thankfulness. Maybe we need to refresh our practice of saying grace before meals. Uh, include more of an expression of dependence on God, on his generosity. As we think about food, as we think about meals, it's also at the very heart of the rejection of God. The very first act of a rebellion that's recorded in Scripture was an, an act of eating. Ever since that, a relationship with, with food often goes wrong because a relationship with God has gone wrong. We find comfort in food instead of refuge in God. We look to food. We're more concerned about eating than, than, than having that relationship with God that he so much desires. We can end up eating for, for wrong reasons. Psychologists say that we can eat to stuff our feelings or, or our emotions or bad memories. We use food. We avoid food. We do it sometimes. We avoid it to make ourselves more desirable to others, and so they'll look at us and, and think we're, we're beautiful. When I graduated from high school, I was six foot one and weighed 120 pounds. Started college, I became obsessed. I would come, I would dress, and I would look in the mirror, and I would go out, and I would either see a, myself in a mirror in a bathroom in one of the classes, or walk by a window, and I would think how skinny I looked, and I would go home, and I would change again. I did everything I could do to, to gain weight, ate lots of food. Well then, also as we think about food and because of that fractured relationship that we might have with God and because of greed, many in our world go without food. I did a little research. About 21,000 people die every day of hunger or hunger-related causes, according to the United Nations. That's one person every four seconds. There's been several hundreds have died since you got here this morning, probably up in the thousands. And sadly, the, the, the ones that die most often are children. How many of you know our government pays farmers to not grow food? Raise your hand. They, they still do that? I assume I, I, it's been a few years since I talked to my dad about it. They grow farmers to, to not grow corn or, or certain crops. They did it as a kind of a conservation method. 
Uh, if you see a, a field with grass or hay and, and they don't cut it and it grows up and it gets weedy and then eventually they come in and, and bush hog it instead of cutting it for hay, it's, they're being paid to set it aside and not grow anything on it. Still, we have people without enough food. In this country, 15.3 million children lived in food insecure households. 20% or more of the child population in 38 states in the District of Columbia live in a food insecure household as a, from data from the, the most recent data from 2013. The District of Columbia, that number is 31% and Mississippi is 29%. Kentucky, they, we weren't on the five highs, so that's good, somewhat good news, I guess. Then there are those who have plenty of food and often they overeat or they undereat. 10 to 15% of Americans have a serious eating disorder. See, food is integral to our, our living, to our humanity. So it's no surprise that we find that our brokenness often shows up in our relationship to, to food. So we think about God and eating we, we, uh, against this backdrop of how food and, and how we view food and, and how we deal with food and how it's gone wrong. On the other hand, God promises you a feast. Again and again, Bible, excuse me, salvation is pictured as a feast with God. We know that when God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses and 70 of the leaders of the people are invited up to Mount Sinai to eat and drink with God. Can someone give me a cup of water? That's found in Exodus 24. And then we, we have the, the rescue from slavery in Egypt, where the defining act of Israel, their identity it's, was all wrapped up and commemorate, commemorated in a meal, the, the Passover meal. We know that at the high point of Israelite history during the reign of Solomon, we are told in 1 Kings 4.20, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. But even as things begin to unravel, as we mess up our relationship with food, God promises another meal on a mountain. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, a vision that Isaiah has, a, a feast of rich food for all people. It goes on, that, that, that passage goes on to talk about on, uh, on that occasion, death itself is going to be on, on the menu, and God is even going to swallow that up. It's, a, it's an eternal feast that he's talking about that no one need ever leave. Jesus also provides a foretaste of, the, of this feast when he feeds the 5,000. Here's a feast which need never to end. It's a feast where at the end of it there's more food than there was to start with. How many of you women ever found that to be so? You got done with you, you had more than you started with? Thank you. If you did, maybe that's telling you something. <laughs> but uh, so as we look at and think about meals and, and, and what they meant to Jesus, we, as we think about it, they represent something bigger. They represent God's coming world. But at the same time, they, they give us uh, a new reality that gives us substance to that new reality. Through the real thing in, in miniature, uh, food is just stuff. 
It's not ideas. It's just something you put in your mouth. You taste. It's something you eat. Something that you desire. And when a lot of times we desire too much of it. But uh, there, as we think about meals, though, and the sitting down together with people, it's more than just food. There, there are social occasions that, that represent friendship, that, rec- that represent community, that, that represents welcomeness. But as we think about the feast and we think about the meals and we think about how it relates to, to as I said earlier, to, to represent salvation, that invitation that, that we've been given to come to God's feast has been at a price. You know that that precious blood of Jesus Christ was what it took. You see, we were outsiders. We were enemies. We were excluded from the feast of God. We weren't invited. But if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to partake of that feast. But Jesus, he takes that judgment that we deserve. He becomes the ultimate outsider. As he was pushed out of the world onto the cross, and, and as he just, uh, was nailed on that cross, God forsake, forsook him. As a result of what Christ did on the cross, we can now become insiders. We can become friends. We can become royalty. We're sons and daughters of a king. Some scripture talks about us being uh, adopted. So we need to remember, though, about that invitation that it goes out to everyone. If, you, if you're partaking of that invitation because of, of the, the public expression that you made, that you rely on Jesus Christ to come in and be your Lord and Savior, it's not just exclusive to you. It's open to everyone. Everyone is invited. No one is uninvitable. If there's someone here today that, that, that has murdered someone, you can be forgiven of that and you can be invited to, to come to the feast. See, it's, I don't think it's an accident that the, at the heart of what it means to, to be the church is a meal. See, Jesus, when he left, before he left, he told us to remember him, not in a pattern of words, but in a meal. And scholars think that the, the early church, is they, they would gather together to eat a meal, and then sometime during that meal, then they would partake of the Lord's Supper. We do it occasionally, we do it when we meet together, but... But never, I've never been to a church that did it part of a meal. I don't know whether you guys do that or not, but it's not something we do. But they did in the early church. Came across an illustration about a film that was made and, and uh, that illustrates the, the makeup of the church. I haven't seen it, and from what I read about it, I, I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to recommend it to you, but I found it useful to use as, a, as an illustration. It's a film called Little Miss Sunshine. It's a story of a girl named Olive who, by default, she gets through to the regional final of the Little Miss Sunshine beauty pageant. But her, so as they get ready for that, her and her dysfunctional family, they head off in a Volkswagen van to go to the contest. Well, Olive is an overweight girl with with big glasses, and she's about to enter a beauty contest. At one point, she says, I don't want to be a loser because daddy hates losers. See, her father is a failed motivational speaker. And his conversation would include uh, cliched aphorisms that berate people for being losers. The irony, of course, is that he's a loser and his family, as you, as you get to know them in the movie, are losers. One point he says there are two kinds of, of people in the world. They're the winners and losers. And as he says the word losers... 
the camera pans around to his family, his foul-mouthed father, his suicide homosexual brother-in-law, his son who, who doesn't even talk, who refuses to speak, his downtrodden wife who's desperately tried to keep the family together, and himself, the failed business, businessman who can't face his failure. And they're thrown together in a Volkswagen van, and, and that van itself is dysfunctional because the horn blows all the time, and the, when they got in it, the door falls off, and they have to keep it going because it doesn't have a starter on it. As we think about that and we look at the church, as we look at a church congregation, we see a bunch of dysfunctional people that are thrown together. Somehow, though, we manage to be a family. We manage to do ministry. We manage uh, to witness for, for God, and we're thrown together, and we cooperate, and we work together. And I, as I think about this, I smile at the ridiculous grace that, that God has. Paul wrote about the, a lot of the different types of members in the church and how they work together and, and they all need each other. You know, we're sure the church may be made up of some dysfunctional people, but we need each other. And as we go back and think about that film, there's a moment in it when they suddenly realize as they're going down the road that Olive, who was supposed to be in the beauty contest, is not even in the van. And so they go back to the gas station where they forgot her. And the van is moving across the screen in, in one direction and they whisk her up into it because they're afraid to stop because they won't, maybe won't be able to get it going again. And as the van moves off in the other direction, we hear the father's voice. No one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. See, that's what the church should be, a place where no one gets left behind. It should be a church where no, none of your family members get left behind. None of your neighbors get left behind. None of your co-workers get left behind. None of your friends, none of your acquaintances get left behind. We shouldn't leave anyone behind. Everyone is invited. But as we think about our, our present culture, we need to, to realize that the kind of the nature that, of, of what we live in, of how graceless it can be. We live in a, in a culture where we're all trying to get ahead because of competition and we, 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 we want to come out on top. It's a culture of insecurity in which we're all trying to, to prove ourselves and to prove our, that we're worth something. It's a culture of spite in which we hold grudges and we are envious of the success of other people. And we have an attitude of it's all about me. In this culture, though, our shared meals can offer a moment of grace, a sign of something different, and that's why Jesus did it. That's why he got down to their level, and he, he, he was, in essence, telling them, I am not too good to come in and, and to eat with you. I'm not above you. Here he is, the Son of God, but yet he didn't thank himself greater than them where he couldn't sit down and have a meal with them. Life in the kingdom, says Peter Lightheart, says, demands that we adopt a new set of table manners. And as we observe this etiquette, we become increasingly civilized according to the codes of the city of God. See, around the, 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 the dinner table, we can offer friendships. We can celebrate life. We can share God's grace, how you've been forgiven, how you've received God's grace, how they can receive it too. How they can have a better life, a truer life, a more abundant life. 
See, with, with Jesus as our example of, of eating meals with, with other people, if we would routinely share people, share meals with other people, and we had a, a, a passion for Jesus, then we're almost certain to end up doing mission. What you to understand that, that, that the meals alone aren't going to save people. You still have to talk to them. You still have to share with them. But meals create natural opportunities to share the message in a context that resonates powerfully with what we're trying to say. One of the great things about mission through meals is that it enfranchises the people of God. We don't have to understand a lot of missiological jargon or hold a crowd with our great speaking ability. We don't even need to be able to cook. We can buy the food already cooked, right? We just need to be the people who eat and the people who love Jesus and the people who love other people. I'm not saying add something busy to your already busy schedule. We, are, we already eat three meals a day, don't we? Most people eat three times a day. Some of us, like me, maybe eat more than that. But uh, that's 21 ready-made opportunities every week so that you can do mission and community. You can meet up with another Christian for, for breakfast and encourage them and, and be accountable to them and hold them accountable to you. You could invite your neighbors over for a meal. You can invite other church members maybe to come with you and they can see how you as a community relate with each other and love each other as you share with them. Francis Schaeffer says, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you, I dare you, in the name of Jesus Christ. She went on to say, begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. All you have to do is open your home and begin. I've heard this many times, and I'm sure all pastors have heard this. Someone comes up to them and says, I invited so-and-so to come to church. They won't come to church with me. How many of you invited someone to church? How many of you had them turn you down? I had a guy that I worked with three or four years ago. For some reason, he really liked me, and he said, I want to come to your church. And he invited several of the other co-workers that he knew that I didn't know to come, and no one came but him. <laughs> and I tell people, I said, you know, that... You don't have to, they don't have to come to church for me to preach to them and to me to share the gospel. You can share the gospel with them too. And I think we, we so often do that. We, that's the easy way out. That's the easy way out. But many won't come to church. But if you do invite them to a meal, many will come to a meal. Everyone pretty much likes to eat, don't they? Most people love to eat. And so that's a good, a good time to have fellowship with them and share the love of Jesus Christ with them if you're here this morning and you've never done what it takes to at the end of your life to be able to sit down with that eternal feast with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ you need to make that decision this morning you need to come down and make it public that, that you want to accept Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior if you've got a, a fractured view of, of food and, and relationships I challenge you to, to look at that this morning and study that and, and, and make some changes in your life in that area. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for these passages about how important meals are, how we can use that to, to share you with other people. 
Lord, I pray that there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as a personal Lord and Savior, they'll make that decision today before they leave. Lord, and we ask you these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.